The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Margaret Reeves. She's a senior scientist at the Pesticide Action Network of North America based in Oakland, California. Since 1980, Dr. Reeves has been working in support of farmworker rights, health, and safety. She is a member of the New World Agriculture and Ecology Group. And we met each other many years ago at a Beyond Pesticides meeting, and we recently reconnected at the Children's Environmental Health Network meeting in Austin, Texas, and I knew I wanted her to be my guest. So, Dr. Reeves, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today, Melinda. Well, I have so admired the work of the Pesticide Action Network. I think it brings the kinds of factual information that we in public health need to promote food production methods that don't use harmful chemicals. And I'm curious, you know, I come to the table with a dietetics degree. You come to the table with an agricultural ecology degree from the University of Michigan. And I wonder, what is agricultural ecology? Well, you know, ecology is the science that looks at interactions within communities, whether those are natural communities or, in this case, managed communities. So we're looking at agriculture as an ecosystem. And so agroecology is looking at the interactions among the organisms within that system. So it's the plants and the soil and the insects and all of that together. If we can study how those interactions function, then we can manage those systems in a way that protect the resources upon which those systems depend and do so without the need to bring in hazardous inputs, fertilizers, synthetic pesticides, and and the like. So am I correct when I interchange organic agriculture with agroecological farming? Um, To some extent. Most of the methods that small family farm organic producers use are absolutely consistent with an agroecological approach. The caveat is that some of the very large-scale organic producers who comply with the organic standards, but not necessarily with the fundamental components of organic, would not so well fit into the agroecology. And so, for example, some of the large, large farms don't have to have the cover crops and the hedgerows and the constant cover of the ground and all the things that one might imagine of a beautiful, vibrant, healthy, organic farm that maybe you belong to as part of a community-supported agriculture farm or something like that. So ideally, organic does follow the principles of agroecology. In some cases, it doesn't. Good. I'm glad to understand some of the finer points about those methods. The other thing I wanted to ask you about before we jumped into more of the pesticide and farmworker health and safety topics is I'm curious about the New World Agriculture and Ecology Group. When I read about it online, I thought, I want to sign up for that group. That sounds like they're doing great work. Tell me about your membership with that organization and what some of the goals of that group are. 
Well, it started in the late 70s, and it's really sort of an informal network of academicians and activists who share a common understanding of the politics of agriculture, the politics and ecology of agriculture and non-agricultural systems as well. But it's very much a political analysis at a global scale. So people in this New World Agriculture and Ecology group, some are at academic institutions, but many of us, myself included, started in an academic institution with sort of a Marxist analysis of agricultural systems in the in the Americas. It has now expanded beyond that, but have moved on to actually make careers outside of academia, in my case at Pesticide Action Network, but very much relying on the science that many of our colleagues produce. And we also share a fundamental understanding that science is political, that the decisions we make about what to study, how to study it, on whose behalf are we asking the scientific questions, that's also fundamental to this sort of shared political view. And that science is by no means objective because we, as members of society, we scientists, are making decisions about what questions we ask and how to address them. So when you see the science that Dow Chemical Company does versus the science that we might do in farmworker communities documenting exposure to, to the pesticides that Dow Chemical Company makes, those scientific inquiries mm-hmm. are dramatically different. I'm so glad you said that because I know that Among groups of scientists, there's always this discussion about whether or not scientists should cross that line into advocacy. And I'm often left sitting there scratching my head thinking, how can you be a scientist and not be an advocate after you learn what, you know, after you found the answers to your research questions? Great question. Well, I think some people do find it easy not to be an advocate. What I see hard to believe is that people who don't understand that what they do fits within a social context. And so whether you choose to be an activist or not is, I respect the decision not to. And in fact, sometimes there's reasons for people to sort of step back a little bit. And one of the best examples is some of the folks who are doing phenomenal research out of the University of California, Berkeley, in a farmworker community, they choose not to be actively engaged in the in the political use of their work, but they absolutely want to make it available to the public and useful to the likes of myself and colleagues who want to use that science to help better protect the public from exposure to hazardous pesticides or to promote passing more health protective public policy. So there are roles for scientists to be activists or not so active, but still the obligation is for all scientists to understand the purpose of the scientific questions that they're asking, on whose behalf are they asking those questions, and how that information that gets generated gets used. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate the Pesticide Action Network because I rely on it as a resource to help us look at the importance of how our food is produced, and especially on the most vulnerable populations, meaning pregnant and lactating women and children. So that brings me to 
talking about some of the risks, and I know that you've looked at farm worker health and safety. You're largely based in California, but you've certainly done work internationally. And you shared with me a report that was actually published back in 2002, although the health and safety issues are still with us today. And certainly the report recognizes children are particularly vulnerable. But there's a little box in this report that looks at pesticides and cancer. We talk about these correlations and the difficulty in saying cause and effect. But I feel pretty confident in advising people, certainly the President's Cancer Panel report did, recommended that if you want to be on the safe side and avoid increasing your risk for cancer, it's important that we raise food without pesticides. And in fact, farmers in this report, it says that farmers are more likely to develop leukemia, brain, prostate and skin cancer, as well as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma than the general population. And I wonder about some of your educational efforts. Do you feel like you've been successful in bringing some of this data to policymakers to make changes? Very good question. (laughs) My answer will probably change uh, depending on the day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Working to change public policy is a very slow, slow process, yet it's one to which we at Pesticide Action Network are dedicated. At the same time, we know that that's not the only important venue for change, and so we do work to educate the public to make decisions for themselves about what they do and don't purchase and encourage people to support sustainable agricultural production systems. And we work to have both empower workers to make more protective workplaces or make decisions to protect themselves while we also work to change public policy. And, of course, farm worker exposure to pesticides is a policy-related issue that we've been working on Well, ever since I got to Pesticide Action Network in 1996, but before that as well. I don't know if that actually answered your question, but... Well, I think that the data that the Pesticide Action Network collects, as well as the research that you mentioned earlier, looking at, I know that this was presented at the Children's Environmental Health Network, where we're looking at populations of children in particular in the Salinas Valley that are exposed. That's, of course, our nation's salad bowl And these children in the community that are exposed repeatedly to pesticides, and I'm wondering when we have all this data collected, it's pretty hard to deny that there are negative effects on our future. And one would think that that research data would move policy in a positive, more health-protecting way. And I wonder if you can describe a little bit about some of your work to use that science to move policy and some of the hurdles that you've faced? Great question. So I'll use the poster child of the neurotoxic insecticide chlorpyrifos. Back in 2001, it was actually banned for use in homes precisely because of its hazards for children, especially neurodevelopmental hazards. So you mentioned the cancer hazard, but some of the other long-term effects of exposure to pesticides and other industrial chemicals include childhood development, development of the brain and ability to learn and, and the like. And so chlorpyrifos was banned for its use in homes for termite control, pet products like anti-flea products. Mm-hmm. Yet, its use was allowed to continue in agriculture 
So that sets up a clear double standard that children in largely urban settings can be protected, but children in rural communities, especially farm worker children, are not. And so that has been a focus of one of our uh, big campaigns to finally ban chlorpyrifos use in agriculture across the country. And we have come up with enormous hurdles. Most of those reflect two things. One is the power of industry in decision-making circles. So it happens, I mentioned earlier, Dow Chemical Company, well, they happen to be the manufacturer of chlorpyrifos. And the behind-the-scenes power that they hold in influencing the decision-makers against making more protective public health policy is enormous. The other piece of this broken regulatory system is that all the proponents of a particular chemical or product need to do is raise a little bit of doubt about the science. And they say, is that scientific conclusion definitive to say that this cause and effect relationship is certain? Or, as we argue for and our partners around the globe do, should the policy be more one of precaution? In other words, if there's enough evidence to suggest that there is real reason for understanding that there is, in fact, harm here, we need not know every little last bit of the mechanisms behind that harm in order to make a decision on behalf of public safety. So so this example of chlorpyrifos is, is great in that it shows both how the regulatory system is broken and it does not function to adequately protect public health, and it illustrates the undue power and influence of industry in that decision-making process. Mm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Margaret Reeves. She's a senior scientist at the Pesticide Action Network of North America based in Oakland, California. Well, Dr. Reeves, it's very interesting to see that. I could only hope that with enough communication between scientists, consumers, people that eat, citizens with their elected officials, perhaps there might be power with the people still left to influence those decisions that lead to harm in the agricultural fields. Am I naive to think that? No, because we are, we're still doing the work, and we still think that it's, we're going to have some positive change. And in fact, that very same chemical I was just talking about, chlorpyrifos, continues to be up again, and in fact, in March, there will be the end of a comment period because the Environmental Protection Agency has once again released its updated human health risk assessment for chlorpyrifos, and we are commenting and generating comments from many people around the country. So that's one example, and we hope to make some good progress on that front. And I'd like to mention one other hopeful policy change, if I may, that has to do with farm worker exposure to pesticides. So the worker protection standard, it is the federal policy that's designed to protect farm workers from exposure to pesticides on the farm. It's the only law that's designed to protect farm workers, and it was first implemented in uh, 1995. In 2000, EPA started a review process. Only last year, in 2014, after 14 years of review, did EPA finally propose some improvements in the worker protection standard. And we are hoping that by this August, August of 2015, 
we're going to see those changes. And for that, we have been working for several years now on a very dedicated campaign with farmworker advocates, farmworker groups, healthcare professionals, many, many people on behalf of demanding better farmworker protections. And in fact, the latest effort there is to get uh, farmers on board. Well, that's, that's because, terrific. Because it certainly behooves farmers to have a protected workforce, especially now when labor shortages are becoming such a dire problem in agriculture. You can rest assured that growers don't want to have unnecessary worker turnover and injuries, so it actually behooves growers as well to ensure that farm workers are, are better protected, even though the implementation of some of those protections might be a bit more costly on the farm. Most farmers recognize that that's an important and necessary investment that is on the safety of their own workforce. Absolutely. Now, do you want to leave us with a website to learn more about this topic? Yeah, there's two of, well, you can always go to the Pesticide Action Network website. That's www.panna.org. Okay. Um, That's for Pan North America. And there is one other one, which is the coalition of groups who are working together on the worker protection standard, and it is protectfarmworkers.org, altogether, protectfarmworkers.org. Great. I'll make sure that those links are also included in the summary of our show that goes out to our listeners so that they can always go back. I think you raised such important points, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that we personally owe it to the people who produce and pick our food to make sure that they're protected since the foods largely that they're harvesting are the ones that people like me recommend that we eat, right? So we always, those of us in public health, we always say, eat more fruits and vegetables. And yet, ironically, the people who are harvesting those or working in the fields may be doing so at the expense of their health. So I like the idea of all of us coming together to work for a safer environment. Absolutely. And and often when people ask the question about what's safer for me or there's a concern about pesticide on the food and exposure that my friends and family might experience, I often comment by saying, if you're concerned about the exposure that you might experience, think about the people who are working in the fields day in and day out to bring that food to you and what kinds of exposures they experience. And, And yeah, so I think you've made a very important point there. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I think we had this discussion in Texas at the Children's Environmental Health Network meeting that the environmental working groups, Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen, are important in looking at the food on our plates and saying, hmm, it's good to know which pieces of produce are going to have more residues. But I want to expand that list, and I want it to also include the health and the protection of the farm workers. So I totally agree with you. We are on the same plate. Let's move to a topic that I think is very important, and it goes along those lines, and that is this equitable food initiative. And I probably should just give our listeners a little background in that at the Children's Environmental Health Network meeting, you moderated a discussion following a screening of a wonderful documentary film called Food Chains. And after that discussion, we spoke about the Equitable Food Initiative and how now consumers will have a way to make more educated decisions in the marketplace with regard to protecting farm worker safety and health. So 
Tell me a little bit about the initiative, how it got started, and the promise you think it holds. Great. Thank you. Yes, this is a project about which I'm very excited, the Equitable Food Initiative. I have been engaged since 2010, but the project began before that when a group of farmworker organizations came together, the three major farmworker unions in the country, the United Farmworkers of America based in California, Farm Labor Organizing Committee based in Toledo, Ohio, with a lot of work in North Carolina, and the uh, Northwest uh, Tree Planters Union, referred to most commonly as PECUN. So the point here is that this is really a farm worker-led initiative, but it's a multi-stakeholder initiative that promises it's a, a standard for industrial-scale production of produce that has labor standards in it, um, much like one would expect in a collective bargaining agreement. It also has food safety standards, just to think about the frequency of big food safety scares out there in the fresh produce world, whether it's melons or spinach or all the other things you've heard about. And it has pesticide reduction based on sort of the agroecological principles that I talked about very much in the beginning. And so this Equitable Food Initiative has a standard that has those three components, but another key piece of the EFI is farm worker voice. So each farm that is certified EFI must have a leadership team trained on it, which consists of farm workers from all different aspects of the farm, whether they're pickers or pesticide applicators or, or pruners and management. So that throughout the year, that leadership team with farm worker voice is empowered to make sure that the farm stays in compliance with the standard, and it also guarantees that the workers are going to be better compensated and that the growers are going to be better compensated for their investment. So it's not just that the buyers insist that the growers have to accept all of the risk and expense, but that the buyers as well are pitching in and participating in this whole process so that the growers, the buyers, the workers, and the consumers all benefit from implementation of this standard across the board. Now, there will be, I'm assuming, a third-party independent audit that all of the standards Correct. are being met. So much like the organic standards, this would become a label or a seal that the consumer can trust. Very much so. Yes, there's a third-party certifier. They will be accredited as a certifying agent. They receive additional training to make sure that they can audit to not just the food safety, which is fairly common, or the environmental standards, which is also fairly common, but also the labor standards. And not a lot of certifying companies do that, so we, the EFI, have to make sure that the auditors are adequately trained so that they can actually audit to the full standard. I hate to even ask this question, but I just know it's going to come up in the media and at political tables, and that is, is this going to increase the price of my food? That is the decision of the buyers, because they're the ones who are making the decisions about how they market their goods. It might. And in fact, your mentioning of the food chains film makes a good point there. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers Fair Food Program just requires one penny per pound in additional savings. And I believe that film showed something on the order of 
a purchase of their certified tomatoes would result in about 44 cents per family of four per year. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it's a significant increase for the workers, and it's a trivial increase for the consumers. I agree. And I think one of the reasons I think in the back of my mind that I even raised that question is because I would like for more of us to be thinking about full cost accounting. So even if a piece of produce costs a few cents more, what are we saving down the road in terms of protecting public health? I mean, how much does cancer cost? How much does a foodborne outbreak cost? Not only in terms of personal health, but also in terms of the loss of brand loyalty or recognition. So I think everybody stands to gain from these kinds of third-party certifications. You know, you made a a point that this reminded me of something. Several years ago, somebody was talking about the increased cost. And in response, a friend and fabulous writer, Sandra Steingraber, made the point that we often spend a few extra dollars on philanthropy. We might contribute to some local charity or wherever you might put a little bit of extra money. Well, buying organic or buying this kind of certified product is another way to make your dollars invest in a better future. And when she mentioned it that way about this is an investment as if one is going to make a contribution to one of your favorite organizations, that made total sense to me. So paying a little bit more for high-quality food that comes along with ensuring protection for workers in the environment, boy, that seems like a good investment to me. I love that angle. That's great. I'm a big fan of Dr. Steingraber as well. You mentioned in a previous conversation that Costco was the first major food retailer to be on board with the certification, and I want to just do a shout-out, a thank you to Costco for getting on board and hopefully reward Costco with my food dollars. But I do think we need more retailers to get on board with the Equitable Food Initiative. Absolutely. And that this will not be successful unless we do get a lot of retailers on board. And we have every reason to believe that there are several lined up. I just, I'm not in a position to mention who those are until it's it's formal, but I'm quite confident that we are going to have a number of Uh, large retailers on board because they get it. They get that the well-trained farm workers who actually handle their food is the bottom line of assuring protection and safety of the food that they're selling. Imagine a worker who comes to work sick because if they go home, they'll be fired rather than a worker who's encouraged to stay home when they're sick and are assured their job when they come back when they're better. That's a great example of what food safety means if the farm workers are empowered to ensure that the food is safe. There are all sorts of other examples, but that's just one way to illustrate it. Or if a farm worker is empowered to say, oh, there's deer poop in this field, I'm not going to harvest right there. And under the typical conventional circumstances, they would lose the quantity of product, especially if they're being paid piece rate. So their take-home pay would be reduced if they actually failed to harvest a particular part of the field that might be contaminated. Yet, if they're trained to recognize the food safety threat and encouraged to do that, that means the food is safer 
for us, the consumers. Well, Dr. Reeves, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for shedding light on these important topics. The website to learn more about all of this information is www.p, as in pesticide, anna.org. We've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Reeves, Senior Scientist at the Pesticide Action Network of North America based in Oakland, California. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, Dr. Reeves, for being my guest and for all of your good work. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.